Welcome, travelers. I'm Josh. I'm Glenn. And I'm Lee Wanika. This is Tabletop Journeys, where we will be your humble guides along the journey to RPG adventures. We are all D&D role players and storytellers at heart. It's where we started out, and it's where we find ourselves most at home. So here in our main podcast episodes, we discuss the core rules, how to use them as written, and how to homebrew your own content to get the most out of your story. Because detailed settings, heroic characters, vibrant NPCs, and a focus on story over rules is what makes a campaign legendary. Here's a message from friends of the show. Order up! What's what's this? Oh, it's Fat Magic, a massive food and fantasy adventure for 5e. Can I eat this? That's right! It's packed with foodie subclasses, culinary spells, and a smorgasbord of fantastical food monstrosities. Is this food or not? Head to fatmagicrpg.com to support the Kickstarter today. Oh, okay. Thanks. Welcome, everybody, to today's episode. We are really looking forward to diving into another Unearthed Arcana article that Wizards of the Coast has put out. We're going to be talking today about the most recent one that they announced, uh, sort of in line with the new Planeswalker uh, book that's coming out in November of this year. They have put out an Unearthed Arcana supporting a variety of really interesting subclasses, for lack of a better term, I'm going to call them subclasses, but uh, the name of the Unearthed Arcana is the Mages of Strixhaven, uh, which is another, or Magic the Gathering sourced bit of material uh, from another Magic the Gathering world. Not one that admittedly any of your hosts here um, know much about. Uh, we haven't we haven't really talked a lot about the Magic the Gathering content on the show, mostly because the show began after the last Magic the Gathering content came out, so we haven't had the opportunity to talk much about it, but here it is. Here's the first one, uh, the Mages of Strixhaven Unearthed Arcana. So let's go around a little bit and get some sort of initial thoughts on uh, on the Unearthed Arcana as a whole, and then we're going to dive into uh, the five, uh, five main pieces of content in there. Glenn, I know that you had some ideas on, uh, on this one uh, in particular. Why don't you start us off tonight? I'm kind of excited to start looking and taking an honest look at the Magic the Gathering material because, I mean, it wasn't specifically deliberate, but I grew up playing D&D and then I did play Magic the Gathering too for like more than a decade, but they were separate, right? And now that they've been merging and I was out of D&D for a little while, I haven't really given Magic the Gathering as a D&D setting a shot, but in looking at the Mages of Strixhaven, I'm intrigued and uh, I look forward to doing other ones after that. I think that the concept that they've come up with here where through this College of Magic, the different schools that can be studied being able to be used by more than one player class, I think is really cool. 
because different schools can be played by either can be taken by either a bard, a warlock, a druid, a wizard, or a sorcerer. Different ones have different uh, classes that are allowed. And I think that's kind of a really neat concept. And it opens up a lot of it op- opens up a lot of content possibility for different ways that you could take similar classes and come up with a war college, as an example, um, that has different schools that could, could, that could apply to both a ranger and a fighter class. Um, I mean, it could be really interesting to see where this goes. Uh, and they came out pretty well. I mean, they're, they re- it reads a little bit weird in a few <laughs> yeah. spots. But all in all, they don't seem too terribly unbalanced. And I like most of them. So, uh, yeah, when we get into the specifics, I'll give you the highs and lows of what I thought. But for the most part, I give it a thumbs up. I agree with you. And I want to I want to kind of dive onto that point first that you said. Dear Jeremy Crawford, this is Tabletop Journey's love letter to you. Please edit this a little bit better than you did before you put out the UA. Because some of the writing here is... is um, Nonsensical? Bad. I'm just saying bad. I'm just going to sauce it out there. Like, nonsensical is a really nice... It's bad. Some of the writing is just bad. So, just so we're not just casting stones, to give you an idea, just very briefly... One of the things it says when you're talking about how to, when it's talking about how to use it and then at how to use each subclass as you go is it keeps referring to the abilities that you gain at different levels in the subclass as though there's a choice of more than one, it reads, then you can choose which of the options you want at that appropriate level. But there's no choices. There's just one. You get that one. But every time you read it, you go through looking for it. Like, where's the choices? And there aren't any. That And that's definitely, that's one part of it too. Um, I also think that just the way that it's organized is confusing. Um, really, at the end of the day, and I said this at the very beginning of the show, what we're talking about are five new subclasses. And they are five subclasses that transcend various other main classes throughout uh, D&D 5. But at the end of the day, we're just talking about subclasses. And I think that there there seemed to be a conscious effort to make them not read as if they are subclasses. And that is to the detriment of understanding what's in these seven pages of material, right? Fair. They tried to write it kind of like from the perspective of the school. Yep. And not quite enough detail as to how to apply it to your character. Uh, yeah. And not in that, but like they tried to just, I, I just feel like they made it more complicated than it needed to be. They're just subclasses. Call them subclasses. Treat them like subclasses. There's no need to go ahead and treat them as anything other than that. So... I agree with you, Glenn. I think you have just earned yourself a nomination for the greatest uh, underseller of 2021. Like, you really underplayed the quality of the edit versus the writing. I think it's an amazing thing that the qualities of the product came through despite the quality of the writing. Yep. Fair. And, and I think that's that's important. And when Josh said love letter Jeremy and the team, Mackenzie Diarmas and Dan Dillon, please understand what you wrote, the ideas behind it, and what we expect the outcomes to be is solid. Yeah. It is good plus, to, to quote Josh uh, in a pre-show conversation. However, the editing process and what I feel is one single writing direction makes it hard to gather. And I worry that that will impact the way you're going to get responses to the eventual survey. And what I mean by direction is this, pick a voice. You're either writing this as mechanical rules that describe role play opportunities, 
or you write it from the perspective of a role play situation. So there's a character giving you this information. What I find with this is they couldn't decide which voice they wanted. So they mixed it all together. Hence the confusion, right? What they need is the blurb that gives you the story piece. And these are rules. These are subclasses. It should have the rules hat on when you're writing the rest of it. To put it all in like in, in tabletop journeys lingo, this text just really needs a good blending. Like it really like, it, it needs Glenn to go through these seven pages and make them all better. There's Josh and Lee Wanika all over these pages right now. It just needs a good blending. And so I'm going to say thank you very much for the compliment. And I am still entertained that glenning is a word. But to Mackenzie, Dan and Jeremy, don't worry. Y'all are not as bad as Wanika <laughs> and Josh. Ouch. Don't let that last statement fool yeah. you. Okay? Yeah, yeah. I, I want to say, first of all, these rules are complex. My overall, beyond the writing critique or constructive criticism, I wouldn't even call it a critique. When you do a UA, make them strictly rules-focused, so it's direct, DMs get it, players get it, Then and then when you write the book, do the role-play piece, like you did in a fantastic job with Tasha's like the great improvements we saw in Van Richten's and in Candlekeep, you know, you can do some really good things on the, when on the finished product, but for this toss us the rules so we can play test it and yep. not get confused. Right. Maybe a blurb of the history for where it comes from, for why, but that's it. But we don't want to get confused with how it works. And I think that's, that's the constructive criticism. There's a couple of times where I wasn't entirely sure what you were going for uh, a second or third reading. I think I got it and I like what I got. I did but, do a lot of rereading. So right. Yeah, but uh, but I wanted I want I want yeah, but I wanted it to I wanted to grab it on the first try, as you have done with many UAs before. Most UAs don't have this struggle, and I recognize you're trying to introduce a product that not everybody in the hobby may 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 know, and that makes it an additional challenge. So, uh, you know, I I get what you're doing, but my 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 overall with the material is goes back to a point Glenn made has made on several several uh, podcast episodes. If we keep adding things and making things more complex, it's going to eventually be a problem. And as I was reading this, despite the English major part of me, uh, that was something that was that, like jumped from the back of my mind as Glenn is saying, don't make it complex, as I inevitably try to make things complex. And then I'm looking <laughs> at this saying, oh, and, and I hate me for saying this. And I'm watching Gled's head grow within the screen that I'm looking I, at right I'm now. I'm loving that you have had an aha moment of don't make it so <laughs> complicated. But I can tell you uh, they, this is a bit complex. I mean, I think the ancient pan- companion is cool as hell, but it's like a whole set of rules by itself. And what it really comes down to is we talk about the fact that the Battlemaster is complex to play because of how everything interacts. We talk about how various other subclasses can get complex because how things interact. Uh, sometimes that makes things overly powerful or maybe not powerful enough. The Echo Knight, I believe, is the other one. We talked about how all these different things intermix and interchange and how that creates uh, all kinds of kerfaffles. I'm looking at this and I can see in advance the new players asking a DM, why can't I play a life cleric who is a college of Silverquill? And, the, and that veteran storyteller having to explain to them because the, the Silver Quill College is a subclass, so you can't play that unless you're multi-classing, doing another class, and then taking that as that class's subclass. So there are little interactions that I think are not well explained in this 
that if it goes to market as written, that could be problematic. And, and it, I just sense there's going to be a ton of erotic questions, a lot of, wow, I thought that was really cool. And man, I really don't know if I like the way it worked out as opposed to this really sings to me. I'm going to do it. And it is what it says it is. Or that isn't really what I think it is, but wow! Now that I see somebody else doing it, that's very yeah. cool. I, th- I think that multi-classing question is going to is going to come up uh, a lot because I counted uh, four distinct powers from this that mimic or closely mimic a power of another class, and but are but are slightly different. And so mm-hmm. we talked a lot about uh, about this. I think it was in I think it was in the fighter episode where we talked about it also because uh, there was a lot to the fighter episodes. But but that whole like these two powers are or in the rogues or something. We were talking about like the hex bloods versus the soul you know the or the hex blades versus the soul knife and the all that kind of stuff. Like very similar powers, but just different enough that if I take them both, it's going to be a real pain in the butt to manage right yeah. and I, I see i see those kind of possibilities without kind of belaboring all the things that we don't like kind of at the front of the episode here too much i want to add one other quick thing and that's in the class breakout um for how these subclasses are done the the subclasses heavily favor your wizards and your warlocks druids aren't penalized very much they're just not featured very much but bards and sorcerers are absolutely punished by these models and it's because of the way that bards and sorcerers get subclass features and how they're now trying to be be jammed into this and for example bards only get three subclass features each of these subclasses has four features, which means that a bard's not going to be able to get all four um, unless you kind of multi-class into something that would allow you to, to, to kind of min-max the rules. Like if you're a, a level six wizard, level 14 bard, sure, then you can probably try to fig- you can figure out some way to go ahead and do it. But it's... it's Well, uh, actually, you couldn't even in that case because you can't take these colleges twice. Oh, no, you're right. Yeah. You couldn't take it with the same class, with a different class. So if you're a bard and you take this, you're missing one of the features, no matter what. And that, that is what it is. So you kind of really have to think well in advance, uh, what you want to, what you want to do. So yeah, maybe that's the choice they were talking about that. I wasn't understanding where if in the original bard subclass, it only offers you three and this one has four, you've got to pick and choose. That might be the piece that I wasn't correlating before. The same thing happens with Sorcerer, because at Sorcerer, you get a subclass feature at one and six, like everything else, and then you don't get your next one until 14, and then you get another one at 18. So since everything in the subclasses is geared towards one, six, 10, and 14, Sorcerer doesn't get a choice at 10. Their next choice is at 14. And at that point, they have to pick between the one for 10 and the one for, for 14. Almost think that if they standardized the way the that part worked <laughs> instead of complicating it, that would be easier. In the sorcerer example, Josh, they actually will get the, that fourth one. They just get it so late in the game. Yeah, they get level eighteen. Yeah, one in, one in ten players will actually see it happen. Right. Yeah. So sorcerers get their fourth one at level eighteen versus bards that never get it. So you're right. They're still punished. It's just they have an outside chance if you're playing up to level twenty or you're playing a one shot that starts at twenty. And, and a power that's designed for level 14 is going to not be that impressive for a level 18 sorcerer. Yeah. So, 
right. All right. Right. Let's uh, let's let's dive in here uh, and start talking about this. And I think that there's a lot more conversation to have once we kind of start talking about the individual episode, the individual subclasses here. So we're going to again, we're just going to go through them uh, the way that they're laid out in the UA. Um, so the first one that we come to is the Mage of Lorehold. Uh, this is a Bard Warlock Wizard subclass, um, and they're primarily concerned with the forces that underlie and drive history. So they are they're sort of um, that scholarly mage type. And uh, Glenn, you said it earlier, their first level ability, eight Ancient Companion, that's an awesome, awesome ability. I absolutely loved Ancient Companion. What else did you think about that? I think the Ancient Companion is super cool. Absolutely. It is one of my favorite features in this entire UA. Wow, does it best anything they ever came up with for the original Beastmaster. Yeah. Right? Flavor, flavor, flavor for days on this one. I mean, just amazing. Yeah. And it's awesome, but it's doesn't seem to match any of the other companion systems <laughs> no, exactly. that they've put out yeah. so far. So it's another brand new set of rules. Um, but I love it. And the College of Lorehold, they're all about history and they're learning from ancient spirits. So the ancient companion ability basically means that every long or short rest, you can bind a spirit into an ancient marble statue. So, yeah, you've got a stone dude running around with you because uh, he animates it. And now he walks around and roleplay wise endless opportunity depending on what kind of spirit it is for coming up with that between yourself and your dm um and you know his history and his personality because you could have conversations with the guy but aside from that the benefits that they can offer you are really kind of cool and you get choices as to what kind of spirit you want to bind into it um between either warrior healer or sage and each one has different abilities and then as the the uh, subclass features kick in for the mage of lore hold additional abilities centering around your ancient companion kick in as well it's really cool i think it's pretty well balanced too based on the way i read it in the times and when the uh, the different opportunities come in but he doesn't just benefit you a lot of the benefits go to any of your companions that are within a 15 foot radius of him as well far and away the most exciting addition in the, in the entire UA, I think, is the Ancient Companion in terms of both flavor and, you know, how it works in the game. I absolutely agree. I love this. And if you're if you're the type of player that wants to play a utility character like that buffs your party, does well, does things to enhance the group, that handles the gaps that are formed within your party, do this. Like, really, just do this. Because you have so much versatility if you are situationally switching between the the various types of, uh, of companions and it's not permanent right you can switch it up if i re- if i read that correctly i think you can only have one at a time but uh i think you can you can change it every long and short rest yeah, yeah. so you can okay we're going into town we're going to be in the great li- library we're going to need help getting this lore and figuring out this mystery well candle keeps cool but i'm bringing the sage with me we're going to be uh we're going to be uh r- rushing the the enemy fortress we're going to need some help in the battle department because most of the party's a little spleeny. I'm bringing in, I'm bringing in the warrior. Yeah. You know, uh, we lost our healer or nobody really wanted to play a frontline healer. Well, I'm bringing in the healer because wow, that healer heals y'all. It heals really heals. Y'all. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's brilliant. Uh, in fact, it's actually what I called out. I said, the, this subclass is yet another option for a healer. And that, also can switch to other utilities throughout. Um, this is a great secondary healer that can really step up and handle the frontline role 
if need be. If your cleric, if your cleric is out of spells, this is what you want. Yep. <laughs> so I did have a have a couple of questions about this, and, and so you're talking about the lessons of the past uh, ability to to heal and everything like that um, uh, that you can you can bestow upon the ancient companion. And I'm not sure if I just didn't read the rules right, but why would the healer ability in that increase the max hit points of a character instead of granting them temporary hit points? Like, what's the what's the benefit to that? Like, so if I'm because I'm, I'm like I'm thinking through like, okay, here I am. I'm playing a <clears throat> I'm playing a rogue. I normally have 45 hit points. I'm down to like 20 hit points, uh, and it grants me now my maximum is 50, uh, and I'm gaining some additional hit points. But that max of 50 really isn't going to do me much good. Actually, it will. I'd rather the 10 hit points. So here's, it's not going to do you as much good in the fight. However, prepping for the fight is where it does that good. Yep. Because other spells, temporary hit points, do not stack. Right. That's the clutch reason why. Right. You've got the max hit points. You can go get yourself healed to the max hit points. Then you can do temporary hit points on top of that. So... If you've got a cleric that's going to add or a paladin that's going to get you the temporary hit points and you have this, your 50 becomes 58 or 60 or more, depending on your level. That's where this comes in. When I say it's a great secondary asset, it's because it can add in uh, in multiple ways. Yeah. It's really good. Yep. Uh, and I also thought that looking at kind of that same ability in Lessons of the Past, the warrior ability there um, was a really interesting... Uh, so what I looked at was I looked at, at that ability versus there's a cleric power that does the same. That basically if you hit if you hit an, uh, an opponent with a cantrip, then you can do an additional D8 radiant damage basically. And that's, that's what the warrior ability is here. Um, and I, I, you know, look, comparing the two, a cleric gets that ability at level 8... Now here's the wizard getting it, or uh, get uh, the the mage of lore getting it at level six. They're in the ballpark of each other, right? They're very similar powers. I liked that there was parallelism between them. So there's really just one rule that's doing the same thing for two different classes, which is nice, you know. And I, so I thought that that was I thought that that was really nice. But again, we're talking about parallels between I'm one class and I'm this class. I now have two powers that do the same thing. Right, but having 2d8 radiant is great if you're fighting something that happens to be vulnerable uh, to radiant. But would they, hold on, but would they stack? Here's the thing. Yes, yes. Damage so, types, dam, extra damage stacks. Because it just says target takes an additional. That would most yep. certainly stack. Yeah, cool, all right. Just like in the sage ability, anytime you deal damage, you can deal, you deal once per turn, you can deal an additional 1d8 force damage. You know, so it's got a little bit of a, a bump for yep. you and all yeah. of them. And what I really liked about that is I was thinking about, imagine you're a warlock. You can do it for extra force or you're dropping Eldritch Blast all day anyway, but now you've got an Eldritch Blast that if you, depending on your invocation, you could be throwing out necrotic force and radiant all in one shot. Yep. Or double force. I mean. Yeah, that's kind of that, crazy. Yep. That ain't, that ain't wrong. Yep. Uh, you know, you're busting people for days there. Yep. But even after you get past the Ancient Companion, the level 10 ability for War Echoes, I think that is incredibly mm. cool. And See, I flavorful. disagree. I, I, I thought... No? I thought... So my, my, my big problem with that was how short-lived it is, right? It is... Uh, vulnerability only lasts until the end of the target's next turn. It doesn't even last for an entire turn. I, I see what you're saying, but it's all about the strategy. If you are in 
initiative has been dropped. If you are the turn before your target, protect yourself and drop your initiative until you're after the target. Then you drop this. Yeah. Now they're vulnerable until their next turn, which means your entire party gets one shot at that type. Yep. And also, it, right. you do have to make sure that everybody's using a type of damage or knows he's now vulnerable to a type. Yeah. So let's say you make it piercing, right? Or whatever. Just say that. And your fighter throws a dagger instead of whatever, because that dagger is going to do 2d4 versus 1d6 yeah. with their short sword or whatever the case may be. Yeah. Um, you know, know what your party does and make that happen. Or if you've got a single, like, let's say that's fire and you've got a, you know, your mage has that fireball coming. Make it fire. So I don't think y'all are catching what makes this cool. It's a reaction. This isn't on your turn. Oh, I missed that. Right? I oh. Once per turn, when a creature you can see hits a target with an attack, you can use your reaction to make the target make a wisdom saving throw. So you see your fighter, your barbarian, it's already hitting with his great axe. And you use your reaction to give it vulnerability to the attack. Oh, yep. And since it's after the die is rolled, and you only get it uh, X number of times a day. Your proficiency bonus, which again, good yeah. rule. Yeah. Then if any of your dudes rolls a nat 20, you best be using your reaction. <laughs> Use your reaction yeah. to go ahead and double that damage. And that's why this ability yeah. is cool. Yeah, I my my bad and I miss. Yep. No nope. you don't have to you don't have to move your spot at all. Yeah. You take advantage. I love reactions. Right. My goal with every character is to have something I can use in every phase of my turn. And reactions yeah. are hard to come by. They they are. Wizards don't get a lot of reactions. Most of the because the reaction spells are pretty limited. So, you know, you think about your your normal spellcaster classes, that's a fantastic choice. You're absolutely right. Let's let's talk about his History whims, history's whims for just a second as kind of the alpha power. This one didn't do it do it for me very much, and it was is one big thing. So we we talked a lot about uh, kind of the duration of the previous power. The fact that you can't use history's whims two turns in a row just seems like it seems like one of those things that they realized like, hey, we wrote this too powerful, and rather than try to craft the rules better, they just said, well, you just can't do it twice in a row. Which is a very Magic the Gathering rule, to be honest, right? Like, that, that's a very much, like, your creature doesn't untap this turn, right? Like, that kind of thing. and, and Or doesn't, you know, it's kind of... And so it's just kind of like, meh. So I liked that, honestly. Right. I thought that throwing on... Giving it these, high, these higher abilities, right? But then limiting it in that you can't use luck over and over again, right? Um, because the three things that you get to choose when you use it, luck, resistance, and swiftness, all add some pretty solid benefits a d6 is not much like i don't i don't think a d6 is great all right fair the luck is the luck isn't great not at that level not i mean but it's also on a saving throw well in that case yeah i guess as opposed to damage right right? all right on a save that's not so bad that's actually pretty good i'm gonna be honest i'd probably alternate between resistance and swiftness unless i had to use luck but the fact that you can't use the same ability because this is going to last for ten turns. It lasts for one minute. Each of at the beginning of each of your turns, you get to be get you get to choose which one's going to be in effect for this turn for ten turns. And given that versatility, that you could shift it around in the fight, but the limit that you can't just come to rely on one of them, I thought was kind of a cool balancing aspect. I liked the flavor of it, especially when you threw the whims word on the end of history. You know, like. Because magic can mm-hmm. be fickle. Yeah. I also thought that that tying the abilities to a fourth level spell was very expensive. I would agree. 
if you want to be able to use it a second time, a fourth level spell, that's a little that's, bit. That's a lot. And so, you know, I, I, this is going to be something I think that we've seen this a lot where kind of the highest level abilities in subclasses tend to not be very whelming, right? They they are they are underwhelming. <laughs> mm-hmm. I think we're going to see that again uh, through these here. So not bad, not A plus material. No, but given the overall subclass, they did a great job right up till then. Yeah, I mean, so far with all of these, it's the number one. <laughs> well, it's the first one we've done, Lee. That's... <clears throat> I'm not wrong. So the next one uh, in the list here, uh, the Mage of Prismari. Uh, it's a druid sorcerer wizard subclass. This subclass is the wizard monk Ang last airbender all over this subclass. I loved it. I loved it. I loved it. I loved it. There were some small quibbly things that I had in here, but for the most part, loved this subclass. I wanted more. I just don't know if D&D 5e is ever going to be able to create the avatar. I think they can create benders, and I don't think this does that quite well enough. That's actually exactly what I wrote down, is bender powers. <laughs> right. <laughs> but I, I, I think the issue is... if. To, to create the avatar, somebody who does it all, can't let it be overly powerful because that's way too much. No player character. Essentially, the avatar can't be a player character. If for my money, it's choose your element and then make those elements better is the way to go. Uh, I don't think they do this. Uh, it, it, I think the, the need to have it be all things makes most of them a bit whelmed. I don't think it's underwhelmed, but it's surely not overwhelming. Uh, so, and I'm going to be quoting um, Dick Grayson from uh, Young Justice all day with that. You know, it's just, you know, it's just whelmed. It's just, it is. On my first read, I wasn't a giant fan of the Prismari school, but as I reread it the second time, I got to say, I like it. And I get where y'all are coming from, you know, because you're trying to take it to The Last Airbender and Aang. On my second read, I just started thinking of it not from that perspective, because they kind of did that with the Genasi, or at least kind of. But instead, from the perspective of a mage who is also an artist, think Toreador vampires, but instead from a college of wizards, right? So the way that they describe it and all of the elemental effects going off around your character as they do all of these abilities, they sound really cool. They seem fairly well balanced. The biggest downside that I see is every rogue in the entire world will hate you. There's no sneaking with the, with the mage like this. They are flamboyant, in-your-face, giant... Fra- they're, they're Elsa, giant fractals of ice everywhere around her when she does everything. But they're, they're definitely groovy. I just... you got to kind of take the avatar aspect out of it. I did struggle with the druid a little bit, though. I mean, I get it. It's elemental damage, so... Because it specifically applies to, you know, fire, lightning, cold... Those are things that druids have some sway over in the course of their spells as well. But the rest of it for, you know, like giant flamboyant elemental displays, it just doesn't yeah. really seem true. No, I, I totally agree. And I um, I think that this was also kind of the first one that I that I read through and it was like, man, this is just not written very well. Like um, like in favored medium, they, they use the phrase spectacular aura of artistry. And I don't know what it was about that phrase that I just didn't like, but I was like, what is a spectacular yeah. aura of artistry? Like what, like I know what all of those words mean, but in that 
in that order and in in that way. Like, I have no idea what they're talking about. It's stone soup. Is what yeah, it is. exactly. It is, it, 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 it's a bunch of things that uh, in and of themselves don't. It's the actually it's the reverse of stone soup. Yeah. Stone soup sounds sounds like it's nothing, but once everybody added their bits to it, it was fantastic. Yeah. I think this is the opposite. It it sounds fantastic, but when you take a look at it all together, it's like it's not ish. I loved the effects, but what I it, interestingly what I thought was they just put mechanics to stuff I flavor. And that's what I didn't like about this. I have consistently said, oh, when I cast this spell, there's a smell of such and such. Uh, or, oh, when I cast this spell, you know, little rocks rise uh, from the ground near me and do X. You know, it has no mechanical effect, but it looks like why. Now they've got mechanics to doing that. And these are all things, some of them things I've actually flavored in the past that now have a rule to them. So technically... I should not be able to do that with my characters. I disagree. I just feel that some of it, while it sounds cool, is flavor that, I don't know, it felt more like uh, maybe you could have done something more mechanical and left the flavor mm. to the player. So what I, I, I think I kind of get what you're saying, but I disagree wholeheartedly because you've never, in any of the games I've played with you, you know, been able to work out something like these abilities because they do have things that you can't just add with your own role-playing flavor. The Boreal Sweep, which is a first-level ability. Icy water swirls around you. Until the end of your next turn, you can move across the surface of water as if it were harmless solid ground. Additionally, when you leave a space within five feet of a creature, you can force that creature to make a strength saving throw against your spell save DC. On a, spell sa on a failed save, the creature is knocked prone. Can only be affected by the water this way once on each turn so like you're basically at that point you and or the gm is going to describe it as you're using this water that surges around you to slap the sucker onto his back and those aren't flavor pieces pieces that we've been able to bring in before because that's very yeah. specific i think it might be a little too specific but as a as a storyteller i would use that as a guideline if the player wanted to flavor it and make it slightly different each time maybe but but it's not just flavor. It's got some pretty cool random little bits thrown into it that give you groovy things you can do. I guess I was looking for, and it's weird because this is an instance where I would have thought stick to the mechanics, leave out the flavor, <laughs> which is weird because I maybe that's not what I normally do. And maybe I'm being a bit two sides of, of, of a coin on it, but it just felt odd to see this when I don't necessarily think that's done all the time. I don't know. It, it's yeah. it's a feeling i don't know it, i liked that specific ability that's the one that i picked out as being oh that's pretty cool because i thought that was really neat but i i guess it was just so here, here's my thought on this is that in the post tasha's dungeons and dragons world flavoring spells is not only encouraged but it's canon everyone should do it more and more and more and i wonder if if players are saying okay well that's great in concept but what do you mean and so here they're saying okay if you're not sure what we mean by flavor here's some examples 
And here's some rules to back up like what this actually means. Here are some things that you can draw from. You know, uh, uh, like you were saying earlier, what's the best use of all the stuff in the UA? We're going to use it a lot for making NPC stat blocks as, hey, I want them to have this ability and they are roughly of this CR so we can give them focused expression or we can give them this. Give, it's a list of things to pull from that are leveled and, and classed to a particular type of character that we can now pull pull from for for NPC stats or for for character blocks right like that's a fantastic use of this material and it is now source material for flavoring spells that that are that you're already using so you know I think that that's a real I think so I, I wonder if maybe that's kind of where this is coming from showing people how to be a little bit more creative with it but if that's where it's coming from then I would concede defeat on that point and simply say that that makes more sense to me I didn't gather that's where they're coming from. I don't know. I read yeah, it. I don't know, but I, I, I can see that that's so, one way, that, that's one benefit to it. Right. And But as a person who always strives to be half full versus half empty, I love that thought process and I want to go with it. Okay. So I like it. Yeah. I mean, you, you look at them and it's, it's really is just trying to give you ideas on how to be more creative. And you could take this and help come up with more kinetic, your players come up with more kinetic artistry moves that you could approve just as long as they stay within the same power level. Cause it gives you a really good idea of what you can do. Some of them like thunder, light jaunt. I'm just going to tell you all about another one. Uh, you take on a nimble lightning form and until the end of your next turn, you can move through the space of other creatures without provoking attacks of opportunity. It basically it's, it's a mobility disengaged, but it's, it's cool and flavor, yeah. yeah. right? Well, and you can move through enemies too and your friendly and friendly creatures without spending double moves. You know, you're basically turning into a lightning bolt and shooting <laughs> through yeah. people. It's kind of groovy. If it damaged enemies as you went, it would be even better. As an example, I can absolutely see from our actual play campaign, I can absolutely see Kess picking up that ability, right? And be and because just the way that that character is played and the way that that character moves around, I can see that that ability being something that she would uh, she would yeah. want. So. She, she would like that. Yep. If she was a druid, a sorcerer, or a wizard. <laughs> right. And she's not. She's a monk. But she's right. not. She's a um, monk. So sorry, yes. Uh, and again, just again, just kind of calling out something that I called out earlier. Um, the com the comparison between favored medium uh, and the evoker ability sculpt spell, right? So sculpt spell is the unique evoker quality that allows them to basically carve out a space where you know their sixty foot fireball doesn't hit good guys, right? That's basically that's what sculpt spell allows them to do. So favored medium kind of allows you to do that too. It happens at a different level, but the difference is that the that sculpt spell is only one plus uh, one person plus the level of the spell so if it's a third level spell you can protect four people right versus favored medium which ha only has a range of five feet which means that you can do it for eight people right out of the shot so you know there's some difference there and then the other one that is similar uh you're not wrong on that just but bear in mind because uh, that's a high enough level ability that the likelihood of being a mage evoker Wizard Evoker and having this are fairly limited. Well, you, so you get Sculpt Spell at level to, 2. Okay, but you can't be an Evoker with that and this at the same time. Sure, you can be a Wizard Evoker and a Sorcerer that has Prismatic. Sure you can. Right. To get the Fireball, that means you're level 5. Then to get this, you'd have to be level 5. So you're level 10 before you get both. Yeah. And, and, and so uh, what I'm saying is, the likelihood is getting is smaller and smaller absolutely. that you'd ever have both. Yeah. Yep. So 
Also, this isn't like Sculpt Spell. Like, if I throw a fireball 60 feet out there and it explodes in its full radius, I can't sculpt the damage around my companions with this. This ability doesn't give you that. What it does is when I do that, around me, some form of five-foot radius of fire artistry goes off and everybody within that gets resistance to the damage type. Yeah, I just I'm not off. saying that they're the same thing. I'm just saying that they're comparable. Like, that's, that's you know. Okay. Yeah. Okay, fair enough. I thought you I thought you had misunderstood and thought that they could also, you know, not damage the fighter on yeah. the front line because that's that's not the case. What I'm trying to go ahead and say there is that here's an here's an ability that's similar. Where do I get it as an evoker versus where I'm getting it here uh, as a College of Prismatic Mage? Like, and just kind of try, try to draw that comparison about that. And it's kind of why would why would I get that power at evoker at level two where I'm not getting this as a, a here until level six to go ahead and get into the subclass, you know? So that's kind of that's kind of where I'm going with that. Yeah, and I think that that ability in general is lackluster. Yeah, I think it's because it's so much less. It's almost like uh, it's almost like Sculptor Light. So it should be significantly earlier yeah. than Sculptor. Yep. Um, the other one that I, I found uh, in, in this subclass uh, was Impeccable Physicality versus uh, Reliable Talent, the Rogue Ability. So uh, Impeccable mm. Physicality you get at, again, 14. Um, and then uh, Reliable Talent is something that you get at 11. And I, I wrote here that... Um, uh, so uh, Reliable Talent, again, uh, basically allows you to do the same thing, where if, if you roll... Uh, a nine or lower, you can treat it as a 10, right? That's one of the benefits, right? Right. And I, I said that uh, in this case that this is less useful than reliable talent, but it's probably more important because a rogue with reliable talent, a rogue doesn't need reliable talent as much as I think a high-level mage is going to need the ability to basically no longer fail most saving throws, right? I Right. He's only going to have a plus two to it at right. most, you know, maybe if right. he's lucky, he might have no bonus to yeah. his decks. So, you know, and so that's, that's, so th th that's kind of, um, yeah, especially where it's dexterity. Cause I mean, again, you're talking about, you're talking about wizards, druids, and sorcerers. Dexterity is most often going to be the dump stat for those three classes. It, not always, and not, maybe not with druid necessarily, but certainly with wizards and sorcerers, the case can be made for dexterity or strength to be the dump stat for, for those two. So, so granting him the ability to basically stop failing dexterity saves that that's a that's a pretty important right. ability so i'm just going to say this here and call it a pro tip though people can certainly choose to build their characters any way you want if you're playing a wizard who cannot wear armor and is relying on on mage armor and the like by god people don't dump decks <laughs> you're I, I am not saying making your top showing stat. <laughs> dump strength. Dump strength. But dump strength, because you're not going to be stabbing people with too many daggers come around level four. You're going to need to throw daggers. You're going to have ranged spell attacks. You're Stabbing them with daggers is finesse too, so dex yeah, don't work. I mean, or, or yeah, saying. stabbing them with long swords or, 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 uh, or what have you. Unless you're playing a blade singer. And even then, you better get dex. Do not dump dex. Uh, make it good because a lot of your spells are going to be dependent on dexterity to to throw them and hit. Your ranged to hit. Your ranged to hit is an important factor. It needs to be in your top three. It needs to be intelligence. It needs to be constitution, and it needs to be dex. And I would strongly set constitution so you can have your you concentration saves. For wizards. <laughs> actually, that's more of a RP thing. So you can do well at some some roles. It is not a factor in hardly any spell. 
though it could be a factor in saving throws depending on what's coming at you. All right. I feel I feel I feel so admonished. I, I appreciate the, uh, the the tongue lashing. Let's uh, you got it. Let's carry on here. My gift to thee. The, the the Mage of Quandrix, the third one here. This one for me was was kind of underwhelming. I didn't necessarily see anything that uh, the, the 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 level 10 ability for for null equation I thought was kind of cool and I liked the flavor of it, but this one didn't this one didn't do a lot for me. Wait a minute. So the math guy didn't like the math cl- subclass. I mean, it happens. Like that's, so, uh, math magic is cool, and it's got a lot it's of got flavor. It's got a lot of flavor. But but this just really, I mean, honestly, it's not written well. I didn't feel it. Was not, it was not executed well. No. This was not, this was not the top subclass. I, I will also say that this has, um, so in, whenever you're writing rules, that there's always like the rule, and then there's the balance to the rule, right, to go ahead and make sure the rule doesn't overtake. And this class had uh, one of my least favorite kind of in the grab bag of restrictions. When looking at uh, uh, functions of probability, the supplemental function ability, where um, basically it allows you to go ahead and and add a d6 onto somebody's rule. But I I hate this this kind of limiting factor that the creature can roll the d6 after rolling the d20, but must decide before the effect of the roll occurs. So like you can roll the d20, but I, I... I have to decide if I'm going to roll my D6 and I only get one of them. I have to decide if I'm going to roll my D6 before we even know if that's a failure or, or a success or not. I I don't like that rule. I just don't like that rule. And so I agree with you. And there are several times this, this type of, of thing happens often. And in the world of digital gaming, virtual space, let me tell you what happens at, at, at a virtual table. Storyteller sets the scene. You're in rounds. The role is called for. The player who who does the role then is deciding. DM is excited, somewhat sidetracked, looking at his clock, watching people be distracted, trying to keep them going, blurts out the result before the player gets to decide. Now the player loses this ability unless the DM uh, the, the DM is willing to retcon. No. Or it degenerates into advice from the party in 10 to 15 minutes of, of debate. Well, that's a little bit exaggerated, yeah. but a significant delay of debate to trying to help everybody meta yeah. whether or not totally. they should roll a D6. Yeah. There are several of these rules. I'm not going to use up our valuable side quest time to get into all of them. But whenever <laughs> this type of issue comes up as a storyteller, especially storytelling in the, in the virtual space and even live tables, I get frustrated let him see it let him know it let him decide i would much rather but but to a point josh josh you made earlier this is very much a matter a magic the gathering mechanic this is very much a okay you cast your creature i have an instant and i want to counter your instant First in, last out, and all that happy horse crap. Yeah. I love I love magic. I got like 15, 20 decks. I play with my youngest with luck at least a couple times, uh, uh, four or five times a month. Uh, when I get to see my oldest who lives in a different state, we uh, that is something we always talk about trying to do. Uh, I love the game. And it's fun at a table where you got some music, you got fruit chips and dip going on, and maybe a show in the background, harkening back to our Farscape parties and whatnot. That's great to have those debates about first in, first out, and that can be fun. At the game table, especially at a virtual table, having five or six people debate, is it fair that he did that somebody blurted out the response before he could do his addition? Is not yep. good. 
Yep. It's just not good. What I usually do is they, they talk about their role, and I, I'll just let them know while the debate's going on whether or not it misses their heads. Yeah. Just to solve it. Yeah. And then let them roll their D6 if they want. Like, that, that's, you know, you know. Correct. Save the ability yep. if don't, you want to. Don't give them how much they failed by and say, you failed, do you want to roll your D6? And then it's like, oh, they failed, you know. But in this instance, though, it's before the start of your next turn, they have to use it. So always use it. Yeah. You might as well, because you're not likely to get another one. <laughs> yeah. I just think it's 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 not a good mechanic. It is not one of yep. my favorite mechanics. Nope. I get why it exists sometimes. You don't want to make it a you-know-all. It's not supposed to be like an echo power where you saw the future. You know, it's you're supposed to recognize, mm, I might not make this. It's eyeballing the jump from building to building in that in that building to building chase. And you're on the rooftops and you're like, wow, the bad guy made it. I'm not so sure I'm going to make it. And you're like, you're in midair and you're like, I better get that extra oomph so I can fingertip the next building. You know, that's what it is. It's supposed to represent that. And on one level, it does. I just think in uh, reality, when playing it out round by round, it fails miserably at achieving that goal. Every time they add an extra mechanic to any die roll that was already established in the game, it, it just adds that cumbersome, we're making it more complex piece. Yep. Every time there's a different modifier where now on all of your die roll, all of your to hit rolls with bless, it's a plus a D4. Having everything be so many different modifiers that are added to each thing, all of those things just slow yep. down the game. It's actually why uh, advantage and disadvantage is one of the greatest inventions and, and uh, concepts that happened in 5e. Yeah, it was just too simple. So, so, so for, so <laughs> for the better. Got, started complicating it again. Well, what it is, is they needed gradients of great and gradients of bad. And and I get that. I know why it's there. I understand logically and mechanically why it's there. This particular element of that makes it worse. It's higher powers, though. I did. I did like, like null equation. Null equation was a nice one. Like that was a nice power. But again, you've got your sorcerer, uh, uh, your sorcerer, which can only pick at level fourteen. They can pick either level the uh, null equation at level the level ten power or quantum tunneling at level four, the level fourteen power. And the level ten power is far superior to the level fourteen power. Like why would why would I take quantum tunneling at level eighteen? That doesn't like. And so then what, what, so am I choosing not to take anything at level 18? Like that's just, that's not a good option either. Like, I mean, flavor wise, it's kind of neat. You can move through solid objects, you know, you can phase shift, though you take damage in the process and go right through a wall. I mean, it's got neat and flavor. There's a spell that does that, but it's, it's a lot not, less, it's a lot lower than, than where you get this power. Exactly. And it doesn't hurt. And you get resistance to bludgeoning, piercing, yeah. and slashing. That's pretty, that's not that uncommon in higher level abilities. Yeah. But even just the velocity shift, I thought was kind of groovy. Probably again because it's a reaction, and I yeah, love reactions. but again, not worded well. <laughs> like it was written poorly. But no, not yeah. worded well at all. I had to read yeah. it like three times. Yeah. Short version is it's a misty, it's misty step. step. Yeah, you can grant misty step. It's to somebody misty else. step for an ally or an enemy. Yep. Because you can teleport, you can teleport an enemy away from you as long as they fail yep. the saving throw. Anybody within thirty feet of you, if they start their turn there, you're groovy. But uh, as soon as they move in, like if it's somebody else, as soon as they move into your space, you can use your reaction. To misty step them, yeah. To misty Would, step them. So your fighter can charge forward just into your range, and then you can misty step them. Or my swashbuckler, like, yes, please, let my swashbuckler all of a sudden transport 30 feet and not have to use any movement. Absolutely. Or bad guy bad guy enters my space, and I transport him 30 feet up in the air. Absolutely. In, in the realm of give your magic user something to do with reactions, this one is not shabby. It's not shabby. Because no. No. you're talking about a character who's fairly spleeny. If the big bad says, I'm crushing your mage now, 
runs up on his ass. And all of a sudden he's like, boop, no, no, you don't. You know, as long as, as yeah. long as a bad Lee is a DM eats mages for breakfast. As, as long as your bad guy doesn't have, you know, extra movement. Because if he was at the end of his movement, great. If he was in the middle of his movement and still had another 30 to go, well, you just wasted your reaction. Let's, uh, let us move on here to the Mage of Silverquill. Love it. Loved it. Loved it. Loved it. With all my being. I, I didn't love it for Wizard, but I did love it for Warlock and Bard. And it's because of how, how heavily charisma-based this is. Like, that's... Yes. Correct. I, I yes, agree. Sir. I didn't really think the Wizard fit in here too much. Kind of like the Druid on the other one. It kind you can, you can kind of make a case for it. I think a case can be made for a Wizard who is a little... Charismatic. Charismatic, yeah. a little better. I, I, I almost wish they had put Sorcerer I just there. think Sorcerer would be better, yeah. That's, be- because, I do too. Sorcerer would have been a better choice yeah. here. But... I get it. You can't give it all to Sorcerer. Sorcerer's such a powerful class, it literally fits just about all of these. Well, on the other side of that is the Sorcerer is not a studied There's uh, That's, that's right? more... And yeah. Silver Quill implies education. Yeah. Uh, yes, that's and, true. And to counter your point, Liwanika, I did the chart out. Wizard got four options in the UA. Sorcerer got two. So you could have taken one away from Wizard, put one at Sorcerer, and then they both would have had three, and isn't everything equal and fantastic? I would have liked that. I, I, just because it uses the same main mod is is why this works better. But again, uh, what I really loved, the thing that I loved most about this subclass, to be honest, was how Inky Shroud, the level 6 ability, and Infusion of Eloquence work together. This is, as a as synergy, yes. this is a fantastically built subclass because this is, this is the subclass of subclasses that we have been waiting for, gentlemen, where a level 10 ability builds on and augments the thing that you got at level 6 out of the box without any tweaking, right? Because level 6, you get the ability... Cast darkness with this ability. And you get to, go, and you get to deal psychic damage, right? And you can see in your own darkness with this one too, just like... Right. Uh, and then at level 10, if you deal psychic damage to a creature, then they also have to go ahead and make a saving throw or be frightened, right? So it's like level 6, you get to deal the psychic damage. Level 10, you deal so much psychic damage that you frighten your opponent. That's just a really cool synergistic build. But it also had but it, it also had some weirdness, right? Like so you're talking about like the darkness bit of, of Inky Shroud. It specifically says in the rules for Inky Shroud that you can also so it, the beginning says that you learn uh, the darkness spell and it's added to your class spell list if it wasn't there already. Okay. And then at the end it says you can also cast the spell normally without the additional effects by using spell slots you have of second level or higher. Well, darkness is a second level spell. So once it's on your spell right. list, of course you can cast it as a second level spell because it's a second level spell. I think they were trying to reiterate the you, fact that you don't, you get, the don't get the extra effects every time you cast it. You only get them when you use which the class sucks. feature, which you only get once per day, I think. Can't do so again until you finish a long rest, yep. You can cast it without expending a spell slot, but you can't do it again until you finish a long rest. And only that that free casting is the only one that gets the extra benefits. So I would I would much rather spell. have said, you know, you can do this again and gain the benefits, but you have to you have to upcast it. You have to cast it at a third or fourth level, right? That would be a cool. That, would that be a cool I think that I think would have been yes. better than saying specifically that you can that you st- you still get the spell, you just don't get the bennies of the subclass benefit uh, at second level. Which you know that's just, but that's personal preference. Like that's again a pretty small quibble because I really liked this class. So what I what I, 
what I would do, and I love that these two abilities and how they work. I would say upcast by one level to get the level six plus ability, and you upcast plus two to get the the the, the other six one. and so the ten. Yep. Yeah. That basically you want it, you got it as often as you want it, as long as you pay for it. Yep. And I think that's brilliant. Here's what I wrote about this particular uh, college. I this is what we came here for. One darkness you create. Two darkness that causes damage. A warlock with this and a damn fear lineage. That's a Lasombra all the way. <laughs> yeah, it is. Yep. I, I I am telling you, and I love me some Lasombra. This is exactly what I'm thinking. And by the way, I'm rocking this very soon with some some NPCs that we're building. I, I can think this of is, I can think of a Shatterkai warlock that should have uh, that should have this uh, this subclass. Are you really? Yeah, I, I, I am really. I am. I I, I think. Uh, yeah. Hmm. Okay. And it's it's early level abilities aren't too shabby oh. either. I mean, eloquent apprentice right at the beginning. You get a cantrip of your choice, either sacred flame or vicious mockery. Love it. Love vicious mockery. One of my favorite cantrips in the game. And they they, they both are are solid cantrips that give you a little bit of damage dealing. You always have it going out. And psychic know. least. And if you're a bar, that gives you getting access to sacred flame is hot. And if you're Oh, you know, a warlock getting the vicious getting mockery. vicious mockery. That's yeah, that's sexy. Right. Yeah, and two proficiencies: deception, intimidation, performance, persuasion, or insights. So, little skill monkey thrown in there too. And then silver barbs, which is like your own little personal version of vicious mockery, is uh, a reaction. Can use your reaction yeah. to demoralize. Which I love. I, I, I love this sentence. It's my favorite. Yeah, you can use part. this reaction to demoralize the creature. It's like yes. Anyone within 60 feet of you that you see that succeeds in an attack roll, i.e. hits one of your friends, or an ability check or saving throw, i.e. resists one of your friends, you can use your reaction to demoralize the creature. So you say, no, you stink! And instead he has to roll again. <laughs> Unless he's immune to being charmed. Actually, what I, what, I, what I envisioned with that was the bad guy resists. Ha! Your fireball has no effect on me! And the silver quill says, did it though? You could use any way you chose to flavor it you want. I was just going with the quick silly. Oh, the bad guy doesn't realize his hair is on fire. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, and that seems like it's going to be overpowered. But once it succeeds, once this causes someone to then miss or fail, you can't yeah, use which it. Which I again. like. I liked that. I thought that was an interesting way to, to do it. I'd like to be able to use it a number of times uh, equal to your proficiency yep. bonus instead of just yep. once. Or make it short rest instead of make it short or long rest. That would be, that would be sufficient. I think this is calling for not that i want to complicate it but this is calling for some kind of power die of some kind that is a counter or a, just make it counters hey we're talking magic right counters are a thing in magic nah, but this isn't a nah. spell you're, you're you're complicating it lee don't overcomplicate it all you gotta do is make it once per short rest or long rest to let it succeed because the game is shifting towards trying to encourage the short rest Right, a lot of the rules coming out for that. So, ideally, your party should be taking more short rests. So, in theory, you could get this use of this ability, say, three times in a day if you rest after each encounter. Anyway, loved it, loved it, loved it. Yeah. Thought it was, it was fantastic. Great. Absolutely. Let's, uh, let's move on to the last one here, then. So, this is uh, the druid and warlock subclass 
Mage of Witherbloom, uh, which again, uh, Mages of Witherbloom draw their magic from the energy that endlessly flows from life to death and back again. So really flavorful and a really great combination, uh, a, a really great option for warlocks and druids. I really liked the way that they uh, um, that they that they did this. I liked the flavor of it a lot. The mechanics didn't hit me as that great. The flavor was so great, and I was in. As soon as I saw Dr- the name, and I saw Druid and Warlock, I was like, ooh. And then as I read it, I'm like, ooh, as I read the flavor box up top. And then uh, use, you know, and then I start looking at it and reading it, I'm like, meh. Yeah. Okay. Yep. Meh. Okay. And at the end of the day, I was like, it's okay. I can see myself grabbing a couple of these abilities to flavor some bad guy somewhere. I just didn't, there's, I didn't find anything here that I would want to be the signature ability of an NPC I was doing. Like, I just didn't feel like I, Silver Quill, I'm like, I want somebody to be known for this. I could make a druid NPC out of this. He may not necessarily be a good guy. He'd probably be pretty fence guy, but, but I agree with you all a hundred percent. This, this class, this one's a little lackluster. I like the concept. I think it could be super cool if you could find a way to make I, it. I, I like Withering Strike, <laughs> and again, just to be able to go ahead and change any damage type to necrotic and then make yourself immune to necrotic damage, I thought that was really interesting. Right. And you ignore resistance yeah. to necrotic damage. That's actually the best ability yeah. that it's yeah. got. Um, I, I found, like, when you look at, like, Witherbloom Brew, so I compared that to Artificer subclass, the Alchemist. Um, and so, you know, an Alchemist gets the ability to make elixirs at level three. This is level six. But the yep. elixirs are much more random, where this is like, nope, I am able to craft potions that do a thing more specifically. And so I thought that that made a lot of sense. But what didn't make sense was how they lose their potency after 24 hours. I, that's just not a mechanic that the game uses. It doesn't use... It does, and here's and here's where. Goodberry. Goodberry specifically has a 24-hour limit, and it's for one purpose. They don't want players spending a making week magic items. making all these things at limited resource cost and then going out and saying, I I can do all these things. I can constantly heal myself. That's why Goodberry. I've got 15 fortifying, fortifying potions in my pack. Or being able to sell them. Unless, of course, you make it, prove that it works, and then use your charlatan and deception skills yeah. to keep selling things that go dead and dormant. No, well, you're selling real ones. Yeah. So you're not alive. This actually works. This is good, but you know it doesn't work beyond, beyond 24 hours. My, uh, the alchemist, the, the, um, uh, the artificer in my game, Cornelius, uh, is exactly that character. He is, he is, uh, he is as dirty as dirty. I mean, he owns a pawn shop, like, um, uh, like a magical mm-hmm. item pawn shop. We are we are we are not picking on anybody who owns pawn shops. Oh no 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 absolutely no fair. We yeah we we this is the old joke. It's it it, it is not yeah a dig on pawn shop no, owner. He is he is uh, he is doing a caricature of of a pawn shop owner. Um and uh uh but yeah but he he'll, he'll do that all the time. Like he will he'll try to buy something and he'll like pull out this like hey look at this nifty magic pen that I've got. Look at the cool thing it can do, but he can only make four infusions at a time. So if that's infusion number 1, when he makes infusion number 5, that one just stops working. Stops working. <laughs> but yeah. he's already sold it 3 weeks ago, so it doesn't matter, right? So 
you know, anyway, I think that that's a, that's a, an interesting. Um, I, I guess I understand the twenty four hour mechanic. I, I just wish that there was a more elegant way to say it. Um, and I, I get that there's not. That is one of those rules that we come across from time to time. That is there because not everybody is capable of saying, "Does that make the story better? Does that make logic?" Because it can be sense? abused. Yeah, yeah. Let's 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 not do that. Like in my game, if I came up with that, and some, like let's say that rule wasn't there. I would say to somebody, look, this would upend the entire economy of the world if you could just make good berries. There would literally be magic users chained to desks. <laughs> Doing nothing but making good berries. <laughs> Get, getting beaten until they make good berries and only the rich and famous would ever have them. And poor people wouldn't even know what a good berry would look like. And all of a sudden, all the kids in the orphanage would be tested every 20 at 15 to see if they could make good berries and be taken away to the little palace to make more good berries. Somebody's been watching Shadow and Bone. Yeah, you, like, you, you see what I did there? That was good. Love that show. Possible side quest coming. Yeah, but by the I way, folks. The show first, yeah. Yeah, by the way, folks, our goal is to always have fun with these conversations, and I like to throw little things like that in every now and then. Reality of a fictional game world <laughs> is that you have to put in crazy rules that are like, why would you even bother to do that? Why would you say that? Because sometimes you have to put the go- the, go- the governors on it. Otherwise, it goes it goes yeah. wrong. Um, I get that. I just wish that there was a more elegant way of doing it. So I I struggle with other abilities with magic item creation. Like once you make rule, it's why a lot of games don't do magic item creation well or or at all. They just simply say magic items are there. We don't want to do rules for it. Or they try to shy away from it because eventually you're going to get a player who says, well, if I can make magic items, why don't I just make plus one swords all day? Third edition dealt with that by having it take your experience so people wouldn't want to. There's a disincentive to keep making magic items, right? That's That was how they handled it mechanically. I actually liked that mechanic because then it meant whatever you made had to matter. Nobody was out there making 15, 20 different magic items because it they would lose levels for doing. You have to you have to put in some of your essence to make the thing. Yeah, yeah, yep. Yeah, that was that was a good uh, limiter on that from back then. But for this, an easy way to fix it, I think, to make it more elegant for Josh would be to do the same thing as the artificer infusions that we were talking about a minute ago. If you can have, if you can create however many you can create, it's. Uh, you can create an herbalism your proficiency bonus or whatever. number of yeah. brews equal to your proficiency bonus. So if your proficiency bonus is three and you can only have three, then you make whatever you want and they last as long as you want. But as soon as you make a new one, your oldest one turns yep. into water. Yep. Yep. And I love, or, or worship it into poison. No, I like water. Otherwise, people would make them. I mean, just to it is poison. it is wither bloom. So I mean, you know, maybe maybe it's a maybe it's a wild roll that it turns into either water or poison or something like that. Like that could be kind of cool. But we digress. That could be too. Yeah, uh, I mean, I actually I think that's a very elegant way to do that, Glenn. Uh, have a tiny proficiency bonus. It can be a lot, and, and, and I mean, I think that's a much better way to do it than to put the twenty-four hour governor on it. Yeah, you just take off the twenty-four hour governor and say, okay, you've got X number, and when you make a new one, the oldest yep. one stops yep. being functional. Yep. And I would say do the same for Goodberry, and that would be that would be awesome. Okay, so let's try to wrap this up a little bit here. So I we started the episode talking about how we haven't talked about a lot of Magic: The Gathering content, um, and so. So the book is due out in November. I'm not sure that we know what we're going to do about that episode when it comes out. Like, or, or what we're going to do about that book when it comes out. We're certainly going to talk about it, but I, I don't think that 
I really know what we're going to find in that book and what we're going to be able to pull out of that book. I'm interested to see what's going to be there. And these, this UA definitely made me more interested to see what's going to be included in there because I, for the most part, liked these new subclasses. I liked the things that were in there. Uh, I thought that all of them had something that was interesting, something, they all of them had something that was good. They also had some downsides and that, and that's fine. Like they were, they felt pretty balanced. They felt like Lou and Ika said earlier, they were, they were good plus. They weren't great. They weren't outstanding, but they were good plus. They were better than a little, they were better than average subclasses for me, you know, and I, that makes me interested to go ahead and see kind of what else is in the book, kind of what's the focus going to be, how important are these characters going to be, or how, how important are these classes going to be um, uh, to the overall thing, what, what's going to be in this book. Some more lore about the college too, because honestly, just the concept of the college of Strixhaven. I, I, I would imagine that there would be, yeah. Well. I've thought about actually getting some Strixhaven Magic the Gathering cards so I could kind of understand what's in there for like how Strixhaven rules play out. What are tech, what are tactics that are popular with Strixhaven? Like, I don't know. I'm not sure that that's going to be any, I'm not sure that that's going to be of any value at all. I have, I have no idea, but. I share that question, that quandary with you, Josh. I started getting into this shortly before Ravnica came out. And aside from what the lineage is, I didn't really get into anything within Ravnica. Like, I didn't really read up on it very much. I don't know what it's really all about. I don't know how to play a game in that particular game world or campaign world. However, when Theros came out, I was very interested. Largely because of my great love of Greek mythology and how heavily it leans into Greco-Roman mythology and mythological aspect. And love the, the Theros book. Love all the lineages. Love the lore from that book. I've never played in that game, but I use several of the lineages in my current homebrew game. Um, I thought Theros had really eloquent uh, and well done player character lineages. I, I really liked it. Uh, I liked the uh, some of the side things that came along with it, just like uh, you know, one or two of the ba the background. One of the backgrounds I like came from there. Uh, they're just elements that I really dug. There are a rule set surrounding how their deities and their pantheons work that I was intrigued by and want to know more about. But again, it's not something that I played in. It wasn't big for Adventure League where, where I'm at, though a lot of people were willing to play characters of a lineage that comes from the book when once Adventure League allowed it. So I have a sense that this will be similar to that. It's going to have a ton of material hopefully more than even Theros had, that I can lift wholesale or in part and put into my homebrew world. I like that thought that that could be, I like the expansion of things. I'm hoping they give us uh, some lineages to go along with what's in the game. I'm hoping they give us some additional backgrounds that might be useful. I'm hoping like uh, Van Richten's did, they give us, some new bonds, ideals, and, and flaws mm -hmm. so that we're not using the same six options for every character type or what have you. I think there's some really neat benefits. Maybe maybe they build in some way to have two backgrounds, hearkening back to a conversation we had with Travis Legg or something with this. I think that there are grand opportunities. What it's going to end up, I'm not sure, but I have a sense that we're just going to have Lots of cool things to talk about that we're going to be able to put into our own games. 
or use features that are canon that are effectively playtested material so we know the mechanics work so we can start putting them into our games. Hell, just a couple feats. I mean, every book that's come out in the last year has had at least three feats that I loved. Did Van Richten's have feats? No, but the books that had feats did. Okay. Because <laughs> <laughs> the book before that's that was Candlekeep, but that one didn't have any feats either. Tasha's had feats, though. Tasha's, Tasha's had a like, hundred feats. I mean, it was, yeah. Yeah. We like feats. We like feats. I love feats. I like feats better than ASI. Uh, and, and, and I... That's just me because stats are great, but they're just numbers that you get to roll against. Feeds that flavor. <laughs> I think that's what we're going to get out of this book, and I, I'm looking forward to it. Um, I'm definitely looking forward to the book's release, uh, and I'm looking forward to learning more about the Magic the Gathering setting in D&D. So uh, if this was a taste of more to come, I'm excited. I think all of them were solid at least, uh, and some of them were exceptional. As y'all said, none of them were like, ooh, ooh, the greatest ever. Uh, if I were to play a wizard as an example, I think right now my main wizard subclass that I'd go with is probably still Order of Scribes mm-hmm. um, because I'm really I'm really excited to play that one. That could be a lot of fun having a conversation with my spellbook. It'll be great. <laughs> but I am definitely interested in the College of Strixhaven and uh, the lore surrounding it. So, yeah, I, I think I think a College of Scribes wizard paired up with a Silver Quill uh, wizard could be a really, really, really interesting uh twosome so you know right no, a lot of absolutely. flavor not sure how much not sure how mechanically that's going to be but a lot of flavor anyway i desperately want to play a silver quill warlock i think that's amazing amazing uh oh i will say this about these any that have to do with warlocks i know these are supposed to take the place of a patron i hope that they add in the information on what that patron may look like because I, that's one thing I think is missing from. Yeah, I think that that's really interesting. It, it, that's a. Uh, I think we need more there. Yeah, I, I think you're right. Because the the warlock patron is such a flavorfully strong thing. I'm curious to see how they how they square that circle. Also, so. Though it would work in my homebrew world because I have a single. Uh, I have a uh, an entity in my game that is, that uh, the warlock in the game uh, deals with, and I basically said, do the rules for the Raven Queen, even though this guy isn't like the Raven Queen, and we'll just work out the conversations, and we've just kind of hand-waved stuff to say this is who you're talking about versus the, the Raven Queen. And over the past two years we've been playing the campaign, it has worked well, uh, but with this kind of rules, I like the fact that it, it is something that would more easily, I, I could see Silver Quell working for, for that one very easily. Uh, and some of the others I think can work as well. So I, I, I like that. Well, I think that that is our, uh, our episode for today. Hope that you all enjoyed. Hope that you are enjoying the Unearthed Arcana and that you are all looking forward to the new Strixhaven's book as much as we are. We're curious to see what's in there. So uh, that book comes out in November. Um, and let's not forget that in uh, July is going to be the new Feywild book, which I know we are super excited about. And there is, they have mm-hmm. already said that there, hey, there's going to be another book book 
in October. I'm holding to the fact that I think it's going to be Dragonlance because that's the only UA that hasn't been addressed yet. So um, we'll see. But uh, this book due out in November. I'm sure that we will talk about it more uh, as things come. There's the big D&D live event coming up in uh, July. So uh, there will be more about uh, about this book from that meeting. So I'm sure we'll do an episode about that when it happens. And uh, we'll talk more about it then. So make sure you fill out that survey. Survey, survey, survey. Survey says. Survey says. All right. Gentlemen, thank you again as always. Friends listening, appreciate you listening. uh, And we'll talk to you again soon. Thank you for joining us. This has been Tabletop Journeys. We would love to hear your feedback on our show today. You can join us at www.ttjourneys.com where you can subscribe to the blog to leave comments and see all the content that we publish beyond the podcast. And make sure you join our growing online community. You can follow us on Twitter at TT Journeys and join us on Facebook just by searching Tabletop Journeys there. You can also reach us by email at podcast at ttjourneys.com. And if you want to catch early access to our episodes and some of the other benefits we have coming down the pipeline, you can also support our production at patreon.com slash ttjourneys. If you're listening to us on Stitcher, iTunes, Podchaser, Spotify, Audible, or any other podcast platform, we would really appreciate if you would like and subscribe to the podcast. Full episodes come out every week on Saturdays and every Wednesdays. We'll feature our SideQuest series where we talk about pretty much anything tabletop-oriented. Thank you all so much for listening and for being a part of our growing community. And in the words of another traveler on our path, we bid you shade and sweet water.